Good morning. Uh, just a couple announcements before um, we look into the Word. We're eventually going to be in Psalm 53, so if you want to multitask, you can turn there. Uh, while you're doing that, we are going to be done with the sermon here uh, a little bit earlier than usual, because afterwards we're going to be having a members-only meeting, a membership meeting towards the end of the service. So just want to let you know ahead of time, uh, Pastor Steve will be helping to lead that, and uh, just some information about our church and uh, moving forward in regards to building and plans and such. So it's uh, information we need to get to you uh, for our membership. So if I wrap up around 11.15, and you're like, whoa, that's the best sermon ever. <laughs> Not so fast. All right. Second of all, um, uh, we uh, announced earlier that this coming Saturday is our cabin fever. And the cabin fever, if you've been a part of it in the, the, the past, that's been a wonderful time. Uh, instrumentalists like Lizzie and, and others from the Cleveland Institute of Music have played. It's going to be a little bit different. Uh, there is no dinner this year. So it's only going to be dessert. Um, and we would encourage you to register online. Um, and so please do that because seating is somewhat limited due to COVID protocols and spacing and such. So uh, please register there. All the information about it is on our website. So you can do that. If you have any questions or uh, registration issues, then, then please let us know. Okay. We're going to be in Psalm 53, but before I do, I want you to imagine a scenario. And the scenario is a doctor and a patient that have a relationship with one another. This doctor and patient have known each other for quite some time. And this patient experiences just some mild symptoms, mild issues, stomach, chest, when it gets, uh, wants to go in and get checked out. So the doctor checks this person out. And after doing some tests, finds out some pretty serious news. In fact, does even more tests, and that news is confirmed. This patient has cancer. And so the doctor calls that patient, and the patient comes in. And the doctor, knowing this in the back of his or her brain, asks the patient how they're feeling. Any better? Any worse? Then asks the patient how they're eating. How's your nutrition? Laying off the fast food, eating the, the vegetables, the fruits? Good, good, good. How about exercise? Exercising okay? Well, good. Well, if you keep up with your nutrition, you keep up with your exercise, you'll be just fine. So the patient leaves feeling, you know what? He's right. She's right. I'm going to be more disciplined at the dinner table and in the gym. All's right with the world. What service did that doctor provide to that patient knowing the information that he or she knew? How would that patient leave feeling the office? I mean, after all, the patient heard what they wanted to hear, right? And yet there was news for that patient that was serious. Maybe news that the patient didn't want to hear but needed to hear. Do you know that God's word gives us a diagnosis of our spiritual selves all by ourselves? Amen. That when we look at God's word, we are given a diagnosis. And in Psalm 53, we see that diagnosis. So if you haven't done so, I haven't yet. Turn to Psalm 53. We're going to read what it says. 
Psalm 53, written by David. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt and have committed abominable injustice. There is no one who does good. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands. If anyone seeks after God. Every one of them has turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. Not even one. Have the workers of wickedness no knowledge? Who eat up my people as though they ate bread and have not called upon God? There they were in great fear when no fear had been. For God scattered the bones of him who encamped against you. You put them to shame because God had rejected them. You know, that's pretty strong language we read in verses 2 and 3. Like, every one of them has turned aside. There is no one who does good. And just in case you weren't, insert, you weren't certain, Psalm 14, if we had time, we'd look back. You'd read almost the carbon copy of this psalm. In fact, it's, it's literally outside of one or two phrases the exact same. Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. Well, just like any good patient, we want a second opinion. Right? I don't know if I like this diagnosis. I want a second opinion. So we go to the prophet Jeremiah who in chapter 17 and verse 9 gives us the condition of man's heart. The heart is deceitful. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, says the Lord, try the hearts. God knows the heart. He's the omniscient doctor, as it were. And he's found man's heart to be desperately wicked. Well, that's just the Old Testament. I'm not really a big fan of the God of the Old Testament. He's kind of mean and vicious and grumpy. I like the God of the New Testament. Tell me what maybe is said there. Tell me, in fact, tell me what Jesus says. He's loving and kind, right? Well, you would go to Matthew 15 where he says, out of the heart comes deceptions and adulteries and immoralities. And in John 8, you would find that he who commits a sin, any sin, is a slave to sin. And if you needed any other's opinion, if you would call it that, the Apostle Paul makes it quite clear that prior to accepting Christ, the Ephesian believers were dead in their trespasses and sins. In fact, to the Roman church, he says that the mind set on the flesh does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so. Theologians call this condition total depravity. The, that man's entire being has been affected by sin so that he or she stands completely at odds with God, both in behavior and in disposition. We see this reality in Psalm 53, the passage we're going to be look, being, we're going to look at today. God, as it were, looks down over the whole of his creation, looks at all of mankind in an attempt to find someone who consistently meets with God's approval and answers the demands of his law. And he finds no one. Do we believe that? I don't know if we do. I mean, let's play this out. So let's say you're going to go to lunch after church today. <laughs> So you get in your car, you pull out, and there's a police officer out in the street, and he stops traffic, and he waves you out so that no cars hit you. That's good. 
As you're driving down the street, the car's coming the other way. They're staying in their lane. They're not weaving in, out in front of you, hopefully. You're staying in yours. In fact, when your light's green, the other light's red, and they're not cutting through, that's good. And, and as we're driving down, you know, we get to the restaurant, it might be a busy intersection. You, know, you might even have someone that recognizes it's pretty busy and hard for you to, 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 to kind of cut across, and so they wave you on. That's good. As you drive into the parking lot, you see there could be a lot of parking spaces available, but there's particular parking spaces designated for the handicapped, those who aren't able to walk as far. That's good. And as you get out of your car and you go into the restaurant, and as that person kind of walks out of the restaurant that got done with their meal, they might even hold the door open for you. That's good. And when you walk up to the counter and you make your selection, and, and you, you pay with a 20, and they give you the change, they give you exactly the change that you should get. They don't put any in their pocket. That's good. Nor do the people around you, when you sit down to eat, they don't come and take your food. I mean, you think that's ridiculous, but you watch Wild Kingdom on National Geographic, and the hyenas in the Serengeti, and it's every, every dog for itself. You sit down, that's your food. The person over there, no, that's not your food. In fact, if you were to sit down and eat your food, and let's say you started to choke, people around you, you know, you're doing this. People around you, what are they going to do? They're going to get up and they might give you the Heimlich, might get on their phones, call the, you know, 911, and you're going to have an ambulance maybe come with people that you don't know that try to save your life. None of those scenarios require a person to be a Christian, do they? The police officer out there, the car's coming this way, the person holding the door, the cashier giving you the change, the person giving you the Heimlich. You don't have to be a Christian to do those things. But yet Psalm 53 says, God looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there's anyone who understands, who seeks after God, and he doesn't find any. So something's up. And I trust, if you're underneath the sound of my voice, and you know Christ the Savior, when something's up, what's up is I need to change. Okay? So I, I need to, I, I look at this and I try to understand it, but, but I filter my understanding through the truth of God's word and not the other way around, right? Because God's word is truth. So there's something that I must be misunderstanding or not understanding about how God is viewing the world. So there's two aspects that I'd like to point you to as far as not understanding how God views the world and then kind of wrap this up with what we do need to understand, okay? So first of all, not understanding depravity relates to not understanding God. So if I don't understand total depravity, I don't understand God. And we see that in verse 1. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Now this sounds an awful lot like atheism, just theoretical atheism. There is no God. And it could mean that. I mean, just that face value, it looks an awful lot like that. However, when you look at the context of verse 1 and then going down, following even into verse 4, you see that 
the statement, there is no God, is not so much about an intellectual or a theoretical existence as much as it is relating to his oversight or care or role in your life. We would call this maybe a practical atheism. It doesn't really matter if God exists or not if you don't act like God exists or not. And that's what's being talked about here. This is a practical or a functional atheism. There is no God is more the statement, the fool that says in his heart there is no God. This is more a statement of defiance as opposed to sincere conviction. There is no God. There is no God for me. This is a life lived as if God didn't exist. In fact, to the practical atheist, God may or may not exist. It really doesn't matter because he's not relevant to the way that a person lives or the way that you live. The fool here is not someone who lacks intelligence. This isn't someone who just hasn't been taught. The fool here is someone who lacks, I'm sorry, maybe if I put it this way, what they lack is moral. Not intellectual, it's moral. This person lives without direction from God or acknowledging God in any meaningful way. Look at the end of verse 1. They're corrupt. They've committed abominable justice against God's people. Okay? Maybe if I use an illustration. The teacher has left the classroom and is not coming back anytime soon. Right? The students will do what? They're going to live, they're going to act in a way that is different than when the teacher is in the room, right? When the teacher's away, the students will play. Or maybe put it this way, the police officers never sit on this road. And my foot all of a sudden got really heavy, right? And down we go. This is a functional or a practical atheism, what's being described in verse 1. And it's misunderstanding depravity or not understanding depravity because it's really not understanding that God is there and does care and he does oversee. But second of all, not understanding depravity is not understanding good. It's not just not understanding God, it's not understanding good. We see that in verse 2. God has looked down from heaven upon the sons of man to see if there's anyone who understands, who seeks after God. That's the definition of good. The definition of good here is seeking after God. We are acceptable to God when we come to him on his terms. He is creator, so he defines good. In fact, Psalm 100 verse 5 says the Lord is good. He's the standard here. So when he's looking over the world to see man in his natural state and does not find good, he does not find good insofar as how he defines good. By understanding really what good is, we understand why man is totally depraved. We understand why God would say that there is no good in him. And really, we see this for three reasons. Number one, we see that man's behavior is not done out of a full love of God. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. Right? So even if the unbeliever, the, 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 the man without God, were to do something good, it's not because he loves God so much. 
His motives are not good in God's eyes. Secondly, his behavior is not pure goodness. In that man's behavior without God is always stained with his depravity. Let me put it this way. If you were to go back in the lobby and you go into the kitchen, go into the kitchen, back closet, there are coffee carafes. And when we use those for you know, fellowships here, we make sure that we use certain carafes for coffee and we use other carafes for tea. Tea you know, is just hot water. Coffee is coffee. And you can take those coffee crafts and scrub them and scrub them and scrub them and scrub the lids as much as you want. But if you put anything other than coffee in there, you know what it's going to taste like? It's going to have that aftertaste of coffee. Why? Because that carafe has been used for coffee for years. That's all that's been in it. And really, that's all that should be in it. Because everything that comes out of it is going to have that taste. So too, our goodness, our good works as human beings, left to ourselves, we're always going to have the residue of our sin nature impacting what we do. It's not pure goodness. And thirdly, man's behavior is not a pattern or a lifestyle of goodness. If there was any action that was considered good, it would be singular. It would be maybe just one event. But it would not be a covenant faithfulness that God demands. So when we understand good as defined by God, we understand why man is depraved. By making this diagnosis about the depravity of man, the psalm writer David here was lumping himself into the same category. Lest you think that David was on a high mountain looking down at all the plebeians, viewing himself as the super righteous person and everyone else as being unrighteous. No. In verse 3, David says, there is no one who does good, not even one. David didn't have an us versus them mentality. In fact, it was more of God versus man. Israel needed salvation, a deliverer from both physical oppression, but also, and more importantly, deliverance from their spiritual condition. So really, what we see here in this chapter, and really the whole point of this diagnosis that we don't want to hear, is that to truly understand depravity is to understand the need for a Savior. We see that in verse 6. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When God restores his captive people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be, get, be, be glad. Understanding depravity starts with the understanding for the need of a Savior. And while this text here in Psalm 53 refers to God restoring Israel, the need for a Savior extends to all mankind, both Jew and Gentile. Let's turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. I'm going to start in verse 9. Paul, the author, is writing to Roman Christians, primarily Jewish, 
And so he says, what then are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and, my translation says Greeks, but that could be Gentiles, we're all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. That should look vaguely familiar. He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting Psalm 14 and Psalm 53. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There's none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You know, going back to the beginning illustration of the sermon, what the doctor should have done with his patient is told the patient, or his or her patient, is that the patient had cancer. Right now, God's word is telling man that he has something worse than cancer. He is totally depraved. And verses 10 through 20 in Romans chapter 3 are that spiritual diagnosis. And not even the good works of man can justify a person. Put maybe in a different way, in a more immediate way, if we took Lent and made it 80 days instead of 40 days, we would be no closer to being justified in God's sight. If we made it a year, if we made it a lifetime. But with a diagnosis also comes the treatment, the cure. Verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the diagnosis, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation it just means a sacrifice of wrath or atonement. In his blood, through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance or the patience of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The diagnosis of depravity is not one we want to hear. As mankind, but it is not without treatment. The righteousness of God has been revealed through Jesus Christ. We are all sinners and we all stand condemned, but Jesus offers to buy us back out of the slavery of sin. He has made the payment for our sin by shedding his blood on our behalf, mercifully taking the wrath that we deserve so that we might respond in faith and be declared righteous by God himself. In verse 24, you see this word justify, right? Being justified as a gift. Look at verse 26. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier. When you see that word justifier, just think law. Think judge. 
Do you know in our court system, the judge can only do two things? I mean, he, he does more than two things, but as far as a verdict go, there's either guilty or innocence. God is the only judge that declares righteous. In human courts, there is no declaration of righteousness, just innocence. God is a judge that declares righteous those who are in Christ Jesus. The judge is on your side. You stand on your own guilty. You could even plead guilty, and you should, on your own, without Christ. Yet God, the judge, justifies. What kind of a judge is that? I mean, it's a judge on our side. By God's grace, it is mercy, it is love. And Christian, as you hear this today, as you hear this diagnosis of depravity, you must not have an us versus them mentality. Because we used to be them, if I can put it that way. Let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. First Timothy 1, verse 12. This is Paul writing to Timothy and the believers in Ephesus. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. All of the things that make us upset about the world around us, all of the sin, you fill in the blank with the sins that really stir you up, Christian. That's what we used to be. That's what I used to be. When we focus on them, we gloss over, we forget the depravity that we once lived in and the condemnation we were once under. When doing this, it's as if in Psalm 53, God looks over, surveys all of the world, and finds no one except you. Because you're righteous in your indignation. But we forget. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and I'm the chief. I'm the worst one I know. The unbeliever is an enemy of God. So was I. God hates sin in every form, regardless how much yuck factor it might have to you. But I was just as sinful. You know, a few years ago, I was uh, at a dry cleaners. I was picking up, some, picking up a jacket. I walked out to my car, and a car pulled in. This car was billowing smoke coming up from the, the hood. And it parked, and underneath the car was a lot of fluid. 
lot of, I think it was coolant, and just billowing smoke. And, and you know, the person got out of the car. So I'm like, you okay? You know, do you need help? And the man got out, looked at it. He's just looking. I said, you know, literally two doors down, there's a mechanic I've been to. I can help you get your car there. Car's billowing smoke, coolant, just fluid coming out underneath. And he's like, no, nah, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. I'm like, you sure? He's like, yeah, it's going to be fine. I knew, because that's happened to one of my vehicles before, it wasn't going to be fine. Maybe today is the day that you'll admit that you aren't fine, that your good isn't good enough for God. You know, Jesus is the reason for this season, too. Please make today the day, if you have not already, where you come to Christ for salvation from your sin. This is the diagnosis you don't want to hear, but you must hear. We would fire or sue a doctor that wouldn't tell us of cancer, right? How much more so when we're told that we are sinners, condemned, yet we have a judge who is willing to declare righteousness. And Christian, we live in a world where many believe they'll be okay a world that we used to be a part of. Regardless what a person may believe, God will judge unrepentant sinners with finality. The worldly system that we were once heartily supporters of and members of. But also one that God mercifully rescued you from if you're in Christ. You know, this past week I read an article from a journal on ways where leaders can implement empathy. Within this article, the article described a phenomenon called psychic numbing. I'll read from part of that article. The author says this, Frequently today we feel overwhelmed. Psychologist Paul Slovic says, Indifference sets in when we're confronted with calamity or busyness that feels too big. It keeps us from doing something to change the circumstances. When we hear of a large group of people suffering, we stop feeling the pain as much. In fact, the larger the number is, the more our brain finds it difficult to identify. Statistics feel different than people. Psychic numbing occurs when the problem becomes large enough to become a number. We become numb. We fail to see that statistics are human beings with the tears dried off. And this was written by an unbeliever, leadership journal. But I think the gist is pretty true when we think of our unbelieving world. It's really bad. It's going to be judged. And praise God, we're not that. Yet, there are faces, individuals, that are in that number. And they are souls that will spend somewhere forever. And we ought not to look at pre-conversion life and just simply celebrate that. We're not that. 
Because when Jesus looked down, or I'm sorry, when God looked down and saw if there were any righteous, he said, not one. Which means he's looking at individuals. In our unbelieving world, our friends, the faceless masses, those are individuals. Christian, view the unbelieving world, that world that you were once part of, that worldly system that you were once part of, with the specificity of individual souls and not just the faceless humanity. Isn't it amazing how less angry we get when we look at it that way? Frame your approach and your worldview with that knowledge that God did not find any of them good, not even one, but also with the reality that salvation is available to each one of them, just as it was made available to you. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your mercy. And we come humbly before you, recognizing that it is not by works of righteousness that we have done but according to your mercy, you have saved us. I pray today, Lord God, that your word would be clear. That it would be your word, not mine. Lord, that the indictment of what we really are without Christ, Lord, if there are any here without Christ, that it would ring true because God's word says it's true but that it would ring true, that would lead individuals to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. And God, may we, those of us who know Christ the Savior, may we love and have compassion on individuals in our world that really do think they're okay. Forgive us for condescending. Forgive us for arrogance, presumption. Lord God, may we love as Jesus loved. May we love as the apostles loved when they turned the world upside down. Lord, give us strength and endurance in this love because like the psalm writer said, God will judge wickedness, those who bring hardship upon believers. And Lord, we rejoice in justice. But we also recognize that it is the long-suffering and the patience of God that leads men to repentance. Thank you that you granted that to those of us who know Christ. Thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen.